0: Hello everybody, and welcome back to Ear Read This, Edinburgh's most powerful book podcast. If you haven't heard it already, my last episode was on Sylvia Plath's poem, November Graveyard, and my guest for that episode was Sarah Corbett. Sarah is a poet, novelist, lecturer, and most recently, director of the Sylvia Plath Literary Festival. I was at the festival in October filming events, making podcasts. Uh, look out on the Earread This YouTube channel for a video coming out soon. There'll be a kind of record of what went on. In this episode we recorded uh, just before the festival, Sarah and I talked about her poetry, her verse novel, And She Was, and the anthology of writing about Plath, released in conjunction with the festival after Sylvia. But to start things off, I asked Sarah, when she first read Sylvia Plath?
1: I first read Plath's poems, not knowing they were by Sylvia Plath, when I was doing my A levels many, 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 many years ago. Um, and I read a poem called uh, Mushrooms and Elm. And I just experienced a kind of, you kind of like an electric shock, you know, and a kind of recognition. Similar to when I read Crow, when I first read Crow and I was a bit younger. Um, it was very different to anything else, anything I'd been taught at universe at, at school, um, anything I'd come across in my, my dad's books, you know, on his shelves. I didn't know it was even by a female poet at the time because I had we had an A-level English teacher who used to give us poems and not without the names on so we couldn't make a judgment about gender. So I read those two poems and I don't, I can't remember what happened after that. Other than thinking, oh, my God, you know, these are incredibly powerful. Um, and I recognise myself in them in the sense that I recognise an echo, uh, not an echo, isn't the right word, like an imprint of my own sort of psychic experience, In particularly in Elm, I think. Yeah, I would have then read her much more consciously at university um, for myself, because she certainly wasn't taught um, on my undergraduate degree degree uh at least in the 19 the end of the, the end of the 80s so I sort of started to discover it for myself really and I probably had the luxury of reading her poetry before I uncovered her biography
0: <laughs> that is a luxury I think yeah um did she have an immediate effect on your own I mean I don't I don't know when when you started writing poetry but was the was the effect sort of immediate on your own I didn't
1: start writing poetry until about halfway through my degree, so a couple of years, a couple of years later, I mean for me, that's what poetry was. And that's what I wanted to do. And it gave me permission to write in a particular way and to use my pretty disturbed psyche, if you like, to kind of um you know to write really from the bottom, you know, really from the darkest recesses. <laughs> Were pretty dark at that time and to be she was my standard she was my standard but also you know this is you know this is sort of the late 80s early 90s so there's no internet there's no I had you know I came from I was the first person in my family to go to university you know I had no no notion of what we might think of the poetry world which is very different to what it is now obviously you know just just I had another clue really so I kind of learned what you do from Plath I you know I sent poems you know I found the magazines that were still in print that she sent her work to in the UK or Hughes's work and I followed her example this is how you did it so she was also a real kind of you know sort of practical mentor so that's how I first then oh you send things to magazines so this is how you do it <laughs> then I was looking up. well somebody told me about the Avon Centre at Lund Bank I was living in Leeds after my degree and um, writing. And again, you know, pre-internet, somebody gave me a leaflet about the, other, the Writers' the Writer Centre, and I got a, I got a bursary, and I paid one hundred and twenty-five pounds at ten pounds a week for a year, and went on an Avon course. And that was where that was where I met tutors who said, right, okay. This is what you need to do, and do this, do this, do this. So up until that time, you know, she she really was my kind of guiding star, I think. And it's you know, it just you can read it, you can hear it in my work. Yeah, yeah, right, kind of through and through.
0: You were interviewed about your first novel, and and she was, which I, I, I did think there was a there was a kind of Plathian ring in the there was a, a reference early on to the to to grit and pearl, which is such a there's a, such a rich seam of of pearl and grit imagery in in plath it seems to stick around for forever in her in her work um but you also wrote about being uh, influenced by david lynch and i've never had the opportunity to ask anyone before whether or not they think that there's plath and lynch have have a lot in common because i've always thought that, god i wish they'd met
1: wow i mean i thought i mean first of all thanks for asking about the first novel and i've never i don't think have never explicitly said this but um Esther so if you've read it I'm assuming you've yeah so Esther is a slightly tongue-in-cheek version of Plath or the kind of Plath voice in me if you see what I mean mm. yeah
0: um, yeah Yeah,
1: and of course that's why, she, that's why she's called Esther if nobody yeah. gets that and also there's a reference to Crow and you could read Ian and Esther as Plath and Hughes I mean, I've not, I've not, I've never been explicit about that, but yeah, that that's kind of in there. I haven't. I mean, I'd like to hear what you, you know, where that's come from for you. I mean, I can start to make some connections and ideas, but um, it's never explicitly occurred to me. So what?
0: What with Lynch and Plath? Um, I think, I think the um, there's a certain just relish in the persona. It's funny that you mentioned Esther. It, the mm. persona aspects in both of them, which. People talk about persona, and they and they jump straight into going, "Oh well, that's a that's um you know fractured selves, and fractured selves are obviously tragic fractures." So they're they're working things out that are mental. They're working out mental and emotional problems by you know distancing themselves by the power of one. Uh, and I'm not saying that's not there at all. But I one thing that I think is really distinct about Plath and Lynch is the kind of bliss in doing that. That both like pure relish joy ecstasy in doing that. that that's something that i feel really really strongly from both of them the way that they use uh, i mean may, maybe it's maybe it's like english person looking at them as a bit of a tourist but the way that they use uh americana and um I, the thing everyone talks about with lynch is the the sort of banal stuff the fetishizing of objects um i think Plath does a little bit of that as well like i you I know
1: i think you've got a there? <laughs> That's brilliant. That's brilliant. I'd never thought of that. But I think you're absolutely right. I think, and again, there's, there's this real danger that we read everything through this kind of mental health lens. Yeah. It's the reason why I don't really talk about my own sort of mental health history. Very rarely will I talk about it because it then it becomes the conversation. Yeah, and and I have a real problem with identity politics and where that's kind of dominating our culture anyway. And I'm sure Plath would too. Um, no, these are you know both intellectual explorations, creative, playful. You know, like you say, I have much more in common with you know um, maybe theatre of the absurd or you know yeah all that kind of crazy play I mean I had so much fun that's why I mm. like writing novels there's so much fun That's so much fun with all of that in the verse novel and I think I enjoy that in work that I'm writing poetry that I'm writing now I'm playing a lot with film mm-hmm. um, and mir- uh, particularly uh, Wings of Desire Wings of Desire uh, and Mirrors <laughs> yeah Mirrors Mirrors Doubles and you know this is you know, like she wrote her you know, undergraduate, no, she's not undergraduate, was it her Smith thesis on Dostoevsky, doubles in Dostoevsky? Yeah. And it got, you can see that in some of her high school stuff as well. So this is, you know, she's, she's interested in this as a kind of artistic idea. Um, and yeah, and all that kind of playfulness. And, you know, I love that word bliss that you use. I think that's very apt, actually, because I think the experience of writing is a blissful one. Um, and it's not just kind of angels, it's angels and demons. <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: You know, it's the, it's the, the difficulty and the risk, you know, she was interested in esoteric stuff as well. And, you know, and, 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 and that has, you know, that enchantment, you know, that dark enchantment it's, kind of, it's thrilling for its own, its own reasons, you know, its own exploration. Yeah, I just thinking about light in use of electrical light. Well, and you get that in plastic, don't you? Electricity. What's the word? Static.
0: Static, yeah. Huge in Twin Peaks in Lost Highway. Not to mention a, a frank relationship with the supernatural. Like a pretty blasé at times, kind of.
1: Yeah, this is reality. As a multi-layered reality. Yeah. It's certainly how I experience reality. Reality. I think that's how Plath... That Understood and experienced them, and explored them. That's a really interesting link to make, and you should explore it.
0: Maybe, maybe got another podcast in there. Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, you mentioned uh, novels there, so I, I was wanting to ask: was your was was the first novel like a hinge point between? Is that too easy to make that connection, or is it a kind of a hinge point between poetry and novel writing?
1: That was a great insight, actually great insight i had um i've always been interested in narrative and film i have you know one of my oldest friends is a filmmaker and we've worked together for years she's a huge lynch fan (laughs) Um, that's she actually appears in the first novel a little cameo there's a woman on a bike going along canal in london that's gabrielle the book should have been dedicated to her really so and some of it came out of our conversations about lynch and about narrative um where was I going with that as I've always been interested in narrative and in story and I love the novel and I read you know I read as much fiction as I read poetry I've always tried to write fiction I'm set out to be a, a novelist I didn't set out to be a, a poet um and wrote you know lots of kind of experimental failed novels and um yeah I've always sort of trying to be right trying to write a novel. So the verse novel was yeah, a way of um really testing out various ideas that I had at the time about narrative and the novel and storytelling. And it was also just a lot of fun. <laughs> lot of fun. You know, there's only so many lyric poems you can write, you know, before you want to do something else, you know, and I've written a lot of them. Yeah, definitely a stepping off. it's definitely definitely a kind of hinge point. Um and also kind of yeah thinking about story and sustaining story and character and dialogue and you know it's doing it's kind of messing around with all those trying them all out point of view dialogue characterization story yeah definitely so yes
0: oh nice coming around to to Plathfest then how how did it how how long has it been in the works? I
1: don't know how to describe I mean it is like (laughs) <laughs> you know my you know my lovely friend from the arts council did say oh you know it's like you're giving birth and i'm like yes <laughs> <laughs> giving birth to like you know like a very huge baby uh, you know I've,
0: uh, for, for a week
1: yeah well this, it's a quite a good analogy because it will be almost nine months <laughs> <laughs> and i kind of well, it'll be quite an easy, but the actual birth, I think, will be quite easy, to be honest, compared to, it's like a reversal. So pregnancy yeah. is generally quite pleasant, and then the birth is dead. No one ever talks about how awful childbirth is, but it is awful. I think it'd be a sort of a reversal. So well, how did it come about? Um, so I used to run, for about six years, I ran back-to-back, month monthly poetry, reading, poetry readings in Hebden Bridge. Uh, with the bookcase which is the independent bookshop in heaven bridge we've kind of have a partnership and they're a partner in the in the festival as well and I did that because I was a single mum at home. Hebden bridge is a long way from anywhere. Certainly if you want to go to a literary event on a night out, the number of times I got stranded trying to go to things, running home for the last train. Mm. And was feeling very isolated from you know any kind of like literary cultural life so I thought the only way to do it is do it yourself so I ran for six years I ran these poetry readings in Hebden Bridge and then you know that came to an end I decided that was enough it's quite difficult to break these things off because people do expect you to just do this stuff and you you know you don't, get, you don't get paid to do this stuff you well know it's a lot of fun you get a lot of pleasure from it but you don't get paid for it. So, you know, it was a kind of like, you know, that's it. No, 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 that really is it. Oh, I'll do another year. Now it really is it. And I'd always wanted to do a birthday party for Sylvia Plath. So I finally got the chance to do that. I think it was 2018. The years all blend into one. Could have been 2019. And I did, yeah, I did a birthday party and Heather Clark came and Gail Crowther came and Tracy Brain came Um, for nothing. I didn't have any money. And... They came and gave little talks in the bookcase, which is a kind of, um, you know, you can get about 30 people in there. And I made cakes and we we had a birthday tea and we had some poets write some poems for Sylvia and it was fantastic. It was fantastic and um, it was great. And it kind of kicked off. Lots of people then started doing birthday parties after that, so online obviously, because then there was the pandemic. And then I was approached shortly after that by um, the Arts Council to ask, would I be interested in running Silver Plath Festival? Now, I think that, you know, they were kind of hoping I was just going to give up my entire life and do that forever without any pay, um, which is, you know, which is the unspoken thing. And my first instinct was no, no. i just signed with my agent. And, um, you know, I just kind of, I'd already done a couple of times. I'd done that thing. I was like, that's it. I don't do any more work for nothing. I can't, you know, I'm poor, I'm poor. I live on a part-time teaching salary. I have nothing other than, you know, just about get through the month sort of thing. And yet I work a lot. I do a lot of work for nothing as a lot of people in the arts do. and I'm sure you do as well. But so, you know, I've been gradually saying no, 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 um, so my, my initial response was no chance, no, no way. <laughs> and then I kind of couldn't stop thinking about it, and I'd always, I'd always kind of, I never wanted to live here. I ended up here by chance. I never felt happy here. Here being Hebden Bridge, really struggled here. felt very isolated. Um, the, the winters used to be appalling. You used to dread the winter. Chronic fatigue syndrome. You know, it was just awful time. And then I had a kind of revelation one day, because where my house is, I can see Heptonstall, where is buried. I can see the church in Heptonstall. And then, of course, the other way, about a mile, I can walk down to Ted Hughes' house, you know, where he was uh, born. And I just had this kind of moment one day, and I thought, this is why I'm here. There's something I have to work out. And I think this was it, actually. I think this was it. This was it? It may have taken 20 years <laughs> to finally come to this kind of realization. Um, so I thought, no, no, I think I have to do this. And also, if they'd have asked somebody else, I'd have been really pissed off. So I said yes, I would do it. And then Ian Humphreys actually, I asked Ian Humphreys to co-direct. So I thought I can't do this on my own. And we set it up initially in 2019, at the end of 2019, um, you know, so sort of going into the beginning of 2020. Um, so Ina Humphreys was very much, you know, he helped me do that initial setting up. I applied for funding and then the pandemic hit and we all went to, you know, suspended time, didn't we? But the other thing that had happened at the same time is the idea about the anthology. And in the end, Ian stepped back from the festival, but took on the lead for the anthology, which in a sense has kind of worked out really well, you know? So, you know, and, you know, so sort of the funding came through for that, that was in process, I think there was a great deal of excitement in the Plath community about this idea. Yeah. And I just felt like it was something I'd committed to. I said I was going to do. And so, um, the beginning of it took quite a while to get back around to kind of had to reapply for funding, but fortunately they doubled the pot, the funding pot doubled in that time. Yeah. So I'm basically, I mean, I got COVID at Christmas. Oh God. Yeah. And I was still teaching. I've got to remember I'm on sabbatical now, but I was still teaching and I just have I literally just started, I did the funding application. Didn't completely start from scratch because we kind of had the lineup and I've sort of pretty much honored a lot of the original lineup. Yeah. And I have worked every day pretty much since January.
0: <laughs> so in in contrast to um academic conferences about Plath. You've tried to make the emphasis of, on the Plath Festival is more literary, have more people who are creative writers involved as opposed to just academics. Why was it? Why was it important to you for, to, to hear more from creative writers and poets in the in the festival and in the anthology after Sylvia?
1: Well, I think one of the things is that well, first of all, I think there's a good balance between you know Plath scholars and writers and and, and poets. It's, you know, it's mostly poets. Um, There is the Blue Moose event, because that year in 2020 was their first all-female line-up. And of course, Blue Moose are, you know, they're from Hebden Bridge. So we've got some Blue Moose novelists, which is great, but it's kind of a poetry festival as well. So I'm no interest in doing an academic conference. I mean, there's plenty of academic conferences about Sylvia Plath, whereas I think the work that's being done is incredibly important, incredibly valuable. It's not getting out into the wider public so one so one of the things is to take some of that really really important research and to bring it to a wider audience so start to bring those ideas about plath to a wider audience you know so you know to just really try and change people's perception of her she was a poet she was a writer and i'm a writer and that's what i'm interested in and that's what she was interested in <laughs> And I think she would have. I mean, we know that she hated her teaching year, and which was a good way to get out of that. And she didn't want to. Be, she didn't want to do that. And she is a writer. And I think there is a danger in the academic community of forgetting that the primacy of the creative act and the creative work. And so that is pro- that's the most important thing for me. And obviously, my really my milieu is is the contemporary poetry scene. In Britain, there you know they're the people I know, and she's a poet. And her her real legacy is in her influence and continued influence on contemporary writing, on modern modern and contemporary writing, and particularly by women. So it is a festival that focuses on female voices. We have a few honorary males, but mostly it's focused. It you know it really is a festival focusing on female voices, and it's her influence. I think really on. On women and women's writing, really, from the sort of nineteen sixties, nineteen seventies onwards, um, and that is continuing. I mean, I just spoke to Chris today, and he talked about his daughter discovering Plath recently when she was sort of sixteen for herself. You know, young young people, and you know, you too. You know, young people are continually discovering Plath and being they're having having their lives changed by her. So that's really, really important, but I think the two things are important. And obviously on what you see, you know what you see now is you see writers who were also often for reasons of necessity, working in academia, but also often then crossing over. And you also see, if you think of somebody like Julie, Julie Iragirai, she's both an academic and a poet and she's at the festival. So you get that kind of blending much more now, I think. And also, if you think of Gail Crowther's book, Three Martinis, it reads like a novel. It reads like a novel, you know. Yeah, it does. I think, that, I think that's really interesting to wider audiences, you know, and we need to be kind of getting this out to the kind of wider populace at the everyday reader, bringing the everyday reader to Plath, to ideas about Plath, and also to contemporary, contemporary writing as well.
0: And that brings us to the end of today's episode. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you to my guest, Sarah Corbett. If you haven't listened to it already, our episode on November Graveyard is up on Spotify and iTunes and also in video form on the YouTube channel. Check the episode description box below for some useful links. Follow the uh, Plathfest Twitter um, for information about upcoming digital events. And keep an eye out for a video coming soon, looking back at the Sylvia Plath Literary Festival. That's all from me. Until next time, happy reading.